I was working uh, kidnappings full time. There's anywhere from one to four Americans being held on every every day somewhere in the world. So when I wow. when I got that message, I worked every day. I had no idea. That is um, terrifying. One of the main reasons is you know uh, how do we how do we know the media lets us know primarily, and the rule in the media is if it bleeds it leads, and the vast majority of the time we save people's lives. So. It wasn't newsworthy. It's not newsworthy to save somebody's life. I guess that's a good thing. Your success rate was high. Welcome, everybody, to the Saving Capitalism podcast. And today we have Chris Voss with us. Now, Chris Voss, a lot of you guys probably already know. You've either heard him speak on other podcasts. He holds a power almost. And in the business world, um, his strategies and tactics that he uses in negotiation are world-renowned and have even put the best to shame. And this is one of the major things that you do, not just in business, but in life every single day. Um, I've uh, seen Chris in action and uh, I'm extraordinarily impressed with him. So with that, Chris, thank you for coming on here. And I'm, I'm so excited to dive into this with you. Yeah, AJ, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Now, you have a very interesting uh, past. You uh were uh, started out as a police officer, I believe. And then you've been in the FBI for how long? I was in the FBI for 24 years. 24 years. And it, was it always just hostage negotiation? No, no. Um, <clears throat> when you're in the FBI, you start out as as a special agent, which is like general, like you're, you're dependent upon where you're assigned. You can be doing all kinds of different investigations. If you start out in a small or medium-sized office, you're probably handling everything that comes in the door. If you get someplace like New York, which is where my, my second office, um, I was assigned to the Joint Terrorist Task Force, and I was only working terrorism. Shortly after, I became a hostage negotiator as an additional duty to my terrorism work during the daytime. And Terrorist Task Force and the negotiation team have have overlapping missions. So, you know, that, that worked real well. And then my last seven years with the FBI, I was working strictly uh, hostage negotiation. Now, um, I, I mean, was that something you ever thought about going? Like, I, I've tried to think of a career path that gets you there, Chris. That's <laughs> like, how did that, how did that work? Was that something you were intentional about or? No, nah, it's just kind of a cool thing about life. It's a little bit of one left turn after another and just trying to find, continuing to find yourself in interesting places. I did want to be in law enforcement from about my 16, age 16-ish on. Uh, I uh, originally just envisioned myself being in local law enforcement, and I. Um, it's not just. I mean, it's a great mission. I wanted to be in a city. I picked Kansas City because I was in the Midwest, and Everybody that ever knew that had been in Kansas City raved about it, just raved about it. And it was close by and it ended up being a great town and great police department. And my father wanted me to go federal. So I ended up with the FBI because they happened to be hiring when I decided I want to try federal. And then from there, it just ended up. Now, you mentioned you were in the 
um, counter-terrorist task force? Joint, joint terrorist task force, yes. They, you know, in ter- terms of art, there's counterterrorism and there's anti-terrorism. And counterterrorism, you know, what you do as a result of a terrorist act was, uh, you know, the FBI's principal job. And I was in New York City on the Joint Terrorist Task Force. And what year was that when you started in there? Dude, that was last century. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I, long. I'm an old guy. I'm a last century guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was in New York for 14 years, and I left in uh, January 2000, about a year and a half before 9-11. So I was working uh, kidnappings full-time, hostage negotiation full-time when 9-11 happened. I'd been out in New York for about a year and a half. Are you actually busy with kidnappings? It doesn't seem like that's something that would hardly ever happen, or was this actually a common thing? Well, as, as a local FBI negotiator, local, whether you're in... Uh, uh, New York City or Nashville, where I happen to be right now, um, you don't, not that many things come for a hostage negotiator in a local field division. Now I get, when I get transferred to the, the main unit that, that handled every, you know, guided, administered, taught everything out of Quantico, the crisis negotiation unit, like we had something in one form or another going all the time because we covered the, the country and the world. And then shortly thereafter, I was assigned to handle the negotiation response for kidnappings of all Americans overseas. And the fact that it's a very big world and there are a lot of Americans out uh, exercising poor judgment, generally. Um, and there's anywhere from one to four Americans being held on every every day somewhere in the world. So when I, wow. when I got that message, I worked every day. I had no idea. That is um, well, terrifying. You know, and, and one of the main reasons is, you know, uh, how do we how do we know? The media lets us know primarily. And the rule in the media is if it bleeds, it leads. And the vast majority of the time we save people's lives. So it wasn't newsworthy. To, it's not newsworthy to save yeah. somebody's life. I guess that's a good thing. Your success rate was high. Um, so now it, you, you think about, first of all, jobs and positions. I can't imagine... Uh, being in a position that is more stressful, that is more, I, I mean, make it or break it kind of stuff. It, it, this is not, you're, you're, you're gambling essentially with somebody else's life, not even your own. When that first time that you had to step up to bat and, uh, you know, you actually had to use the things that you believed or, or, or knew, but you hadn't used them before. How was that? You know, if you, first of all, you've got a process and you've been working on your process. You fall to your highest level of preparation. You rise to the level of your systems. I had been volunteering on a suicide hotline for over two years when I negotiated my first hostage siege, um, which is a Chase Manhattan bank robbery of uh, the number of different things that I've done with Masterclass. They actually did a special episode in their in their uh, service called Crisis Day. And I go into a lot of depth on what happened at the Chase Bank. But I had a process and I'd been practicing and I'd been and I leaned into the process. And if you got a pro- and, you know, proven process, if you will, the, the suicide hotline, the only difference between a suicide hotline and a hostage siege is one's got a SWAT team outside and the other doesn't have anybody outside. And I had already learned that, and so I leaned into my training. Um, and negotiation is a performance event, 
and, and there's a lot of similarities to any high pressure event with people's sporting events. And the best athletes have rehearsed and practiced, not only in actuality, but they envision themselves doing it right. You know, you can, you can think back over a conversation you had with somebody and like, I wish I'd have said this. This would really put them in their place. That's rehearsing doing it wrong. But if I have an interaction with somebody where I've let you know my blood boil and I've had a bad tone of voice, which happens to me, I'll go back and I'll imagine myself reacting calmly or reacting in a, in a much more positive way. And that's a way to practice doing it right in your head. And when I got to the Chase Bank, I've been practicing doing it right. And I just fell into the process. And the outcome was successful, I hope? We got everybody out. Yeah, we got the, we got the bad, you know, bad guys surrendered, uh, hostages surrendered. There were three hostages. There were two bad guys inside. And uh, everybody came out alive and unharmed. I'm not going to lie. I got really nervous when I asked that. I'm like, oh, no, did I put him in a position where I'm like, he has to tell me no. So I'm very grateful that I didn't. <laughs> That's, I'm really glad to hear that. Well, you know, the other thing, too, is there's no such thing as perfection. Like my former boss, Gary Nessner, he taught me a lot of things. He was a great mentor. I learned a lot from Gary. And a phrase that he used all the time was best chance of success. Now, I had a kidnapping a number of years later. Um, that went bad. And in point of fact, if you work enough kidnappings, some of them are going to go bad just based on the numbers. And I remember saying to myself, well, I've been repeating Gary's words for years, best chance of success, which by definition means there's no guarantee of success, which means some things are going to go bad. You know, the universe just got a, a different outcome and there's nothing you could do about it. And so best chance of success is, is not perfection. Perfection is a fool's errand anyway. I, I love that. I think and that is so applicable to everyone. One of the biggest problems I think we, we have is you don't do anything because you are afraid you can't do it right and perfect or that you may fail. And um, that's negating doing anything. I mean, and I, I think when you look at your best chance of success, I, I literally wrote this line down. I mean, this is amazing. You rise to the level of your systems. I am a complete believer in this um, when looking at scaling our companies, when looking at deploying across multiple, you know, 10 different states, things, we are only as good as our systems. And we will fall down to the level of the systems, or we will rise up to them. And uh, now when you talk about this best chances of success, what is your process when you are trying to put yourself into the best chance of success, whether that's a hostage negotiation or a business deal, what are you looking at? What are you trying to prepare for? Yeah, well, I, you know, um, multiple possibilities is the first thing. Um, and as human beings, we have a tendency to just envision one possibility. One of, one of our 11 commandments of negotiation is thou shalt not envision only one outcome. Um, because you get tunnel vision, you, you miss opportunities. You, you, you miss so much because then you become invested in that outcome and, if, and you refuse to see the indicators along the way that you're wrong. And so the first thing is, uh, and it's human nature, first of all, to envision one outcome. Um, uh, I'm an Andrew Huberman fan. And on one of his podcasts, I heard him talking about how people think. 
And he said that people think about where they want to go, how they want to get there, and how they plan on getting there, which is what I call DPO or duration, path, and outcome. How long is it going to take me to get to where I want to go and how am I going to get there? And so the first thing is get yourself out of envisioning one outcome. So how do you do that? Well, the first step is think what the worst outcome looks like and then think about what the best outcome looks like. And so now you're in two. And then when you do that, then your gut instinct's going to kick in and say, yeah, okay, those are the extremes. And the, the reality is probably somewhere in between these two. So that gives you the flexibility to try to recognize there are multiple paths. Now you're in the moment. Now you're wondering, all right, so which way is this going to go? It's got, I got I to gotta find out. I got to jump in. And so um, just being aware that there are multiple paths, multiple possibilities is actually the first preparation step. Don't get wedded to a single outcome. Now, this is something people have a really hard time doing, Chris. I, I find, like I call it toxic optimism, where you believe <laughs> so much that everything's going to go right. And you think that being negative is so bad that you are blindly unaware and you actually sabotage any chance you have of being successful. And I think when I look at it, I'm like understanding that baseline, that downside is really important for you to actually be confident. And you got to like name it. You got to call it. You got to see it. You got to understand it. Like, is this a game ending move or is this a mitigated risk? And what are the odds of those things even happening? And what would that look like? And and how that would that play out? And I feel like once you're comfortable with that and once you understand it, you're free to move forward. But blindly ignoring it. Um, and I think entrepreneurs, we, we have a big problem with this. We don't want anybody to tell us that we won't succeed. We don't want anybody to tell us that there's problems. It's just, we wanna move forward and it's gonna work. And um, that is, it's toxic. It really, really is because you built a company around people not being able to give you important feedback. You can't tell negatives, you can't look. And once again, like you said, you're pegged to only one thing. Now you can't pivot. And in any edit, everything, I believe you have to pivot in life. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I agree with you 100%. Because um, uh, data improves design. And so you start getting feedback from people, from the situation, from whatever you're trying. Then then you adjust. You get, you get smarter. Be willing to be smarter today than you were yesterday. And yeah, uh, optimism is definitely one of those things that can blind people. Now, you talk about these variables and a lot of people when we are having discussions, even when we're working with like a seller of a company or a seller of a large asset and it's something they depend on, it's something they love, it's something that they created, right? There is an emotional attachment for these peoples in that negotiation going into it. And there's also the unknown. And I feel like these two things are extraordinarily hard for people to negotiate with. I have an emotional attachment, so the value that I'm putting on it may not be based in reality. It may actually be based more on emotions. And then two, I'm scared of what will happen. Um, and that's that, that fear may not be even selling it, but it may be everything that's attached to selling it. What do I do afterwards? What if, how much am I gonna get taxed? What's the money gonna look like? And these two things I view kill most deals. And none of them are actually with the numbers. So these variables that come in, because those are unknown variables, I don't understand necessarily the background or that emotional side. 
I don't understand their personal life, what they may fear. Maybe they have a spouse they need to take care of that's, you know, that needs medical supply. Maybe they need to move somewhere, right? And not knowing those variables, then how do you, like, how do you prepare for that? Because you can kill a deal and it had nothing to do with the deal at all. It was all these external variables that you never planned for. When you're in these kind of situations, how do you get to the point where you're actually having a real negotiation? Like you're really talking about what matters. Right, and it's, it's a great point because these are the things that cloud people's minds. Now, the, the counterintuitive answer is you call it out. You discuss it. You bring it out in the open. You know, <clears throat> whatever the elephant in the room is, call it out. You know, don't deny it. Don't ignore it. Call it out. And then find out exactly which elephant it is. That you, you know, you, you can predict uh, with, you know, I don't know, 60, 70, 80% accuracy what the elephants in the room are going to be. But then call them out. I mean, that's, that's really the definition of tactical empathy. empathy. Tactical empathy is an action. Most people think that empathy is just seeing it from the other person's perspective. Some people tell you, you got to feel it. That's not the case. That is not the case. It never was. Being aware of it, seeing it from their perspective. Now, but then you got to call it out. Um, it does. Empathy doesn't help you make your argument better until you've confirmed with the other side that you've got their perspective accurate. Now, two things happen when you confirm the perspective. First of all, you got it. You got it right. Like you don't know that you got it right till the other side tells you you got it right. Now, secondly. It's incredibly emotionally satisfying to feel heard. Now, all the things that you're talking about are eminently predictable. And they just want to know that you know. Now, you know, in the warm and fuzzy last century psychology, sociology, therapy, the soft sciences, if you will. I would, I would, I would say psychology at best was a soft science. And then even then, like if you got a psychology convention, you think all the psychologists are gonna agree? They ain't gonna agree on anything. <laughs> so, now however, today we have neuroscience, which is much harder science. There's still a lot to be learned about it. But neuroscience has told neuroscientists that the feeling of being understood triggers principally two neurochemicals, oxytocin and serotonin. If you really feel understood by me, you're gonna get a dose of your own oxytocin and your own serotonin. What good does that do, you might ask? Well, when you get ahead of oxytocin, a lot of people think of it as the love drug. It's the bonding drug. You feel bonded to me. Now, this is not a two-way bond. You get ahead of your oxytocin, I don't feel bonded to you. You feel bonded to me. Secondly, and this is my source on this, is again, it's Huberman. I'm listening to one of his podcasts on relationships. When you get oxytocin, you start telling me the truth. It's besides being the love drug, it's the honesty, honesty drug. So you're going to bond to me. You're going to start telling me the truth. What happens when you get serotonin? The drug of satisfaction. What does that mean? What that means is you want less. So the act of and the process of me confirming understanding with you, number one, I get on solid ground as to what the obstacles are. I'm not guessing. I'm checking with you. You're confirming. So now I know 
what my true starting point is. Secondly, you bond with me, you tell me the truth, you want less. Those are precursors for me doing a successful negotiation. I don't know what else you would want to set up the real negotiation. So you first want to make sure that that seller, that those people that you're working with, Phil, understood that you are, you get where they're coming from. You see it, but you don't feel it. I think that was an important distinguish is, is empathy is not feeling, but it is seeing and understanding. And then from their perspective, then, or they release those chemicals, now they're bonded to you and that opens the gates for a whole new type of negotiation. And I think that that's, so that's important because when I looked at him, like a lot of people don't like calling out the things that we were talking about, right? So if you're in a negotiation, you're like, yeah, okay, but what's really driving you, right? Is it your mother's in a nursing home? Is that what's the problem? People are like, what, what are we, what are you doing talking about that? Like, that's not your business or whatnot. But you're right, if you're in a position here where they feel understood and then they feel open and that they can have those discussions, then that elephant you can find and you can call it out carefully and tactically without having the opposite effect of driving them away. Yeah, and, and I think what what's caused most people to be afraid of calling stuff out is most of the time they don't call it out or simply observe it. The first mistake they make is they say, I don't want you to feel this way. I don't want you to think this. I don't want you to think that. That's that's denying. That's, that's uh, taking away their autonomy. People hate that. Now, secondly, most of the time when, when you call it out, Nobody is smart enough to shut up at that point. They say they want to go, but here's why that's not the case. Well, you just blew everything. It didn't matter that you understood because you just told them that your understanding is useless. That doesn't do any good. You got you got to call it out and you got to let it sink in. You got to go dead silent. And and do you have to feel it? You know, I'll give you an example in real estate negotiation. Um, Real estate agent in the Atlanta area, Jerry Metcalf, very smart. Um, has used the black swan method extensively. <clears throat> and she was, she was telling me one time about getting a seller to stage their home. And that's one of the biggest problems for agents, getting sellers to stage their home because they got to sell the home, they got to stage it, and they got to clear out of the place whenever anybody shows up. And then they stage the home and they got to go out for dinner because they're not allowed to use the kitchen, you know, because they're going to make the place dirty again, all the stuff they're going to do. Sellers hate it. And Jerry's having trouble getting a seller to stage her home. And she just says, look, look, you don't want to stage your home because it makes you feel like a guest in your own home. You don't want to feel like an intruder in your home. You don't want to have to clear out every time somebody shows up as if you don't belong there in the first place. And then she shut up. She didn't go, but you have to do this because that's what you got to do to sell the house. She just shut up and she let it sink in. And the sellers go, yeah, and I guess if that's what we got to do to sell the house, we got to do it. She didn't have to convince him. And she didn't feel like a guest in their house. She saw as a professional this was a necessary aspect of what they were going to have to go through. And consequently, just let them know that she understood. I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? Like, they know they have to, but they it's like they want you to know that listen, I, this is totally uncomfortable. We don't like this and everything, but 
instead of being told. Instead of being told or, you know, maybe it's eating at them and they can't quite put their finger on it. A lot of a lot of negatives that obstruct people's decision making, which by definition is what dis- obstructs their decision making. They don't even know. And calling it out gives them the opportunity to reconcile themselves and say to themselves, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, I guess that is kind of dumb. I'm getting in my own way. And and instead of telling them that they're getting in their own way, let them let them process it themselves emotionally, and you'd be shocked at the outcome. It, emotionally, this is something that you bring up in your book um, a lot, and a lot of things you talk about. You know how we are just emotional driven animals, and and most of us fail to realize this. And I I think this is something that everyone obviously can relate to, unless they're just in total denial. But um, it is such a fundamental part of not only negotiation, but of you being able to put yourself into a position. And this is hard. So like I, you know, I it's hard for me. I get excited about things that I love. Right. And I get excited when there's opportunities. And obviously I get sad when I lose and I don't want to lose. And sometimes you need it more. So then you push harder. But those are emotional, uh, those emotions driven, driven that lots of time have negative outcomes. It, it seems like before you can go into any type of negotiation period, whether that's personally, whether that's business, right, uh, you have to get that under control. But I think the catch 22 is the more important it is, the more emotionally driven it is. How how do you balance these things and and what do you do? Because you're walking into a hostage negotiation and I mean, you either see the person I can't. There's nothing more emotionally driven than that. How do you not beg for that person to be released? How do you not just I'll give you anything you want. Just please don't hurt the children. Don't hurt. I mean, how how do you keep a level head? Um, and, and there's two vastly different types of negotiation that are, that are kind of like cousins with each other. And there's a high stress hostage situation and then there's a high stress business situation. And the principal differences are, first of all, I got I got to remain. And you touched on optimism before. You got to be slightly optimist. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be to- toxic. Optimism is where you're blind. But. Slightly optimistic, whether it's hostage siege or business deal, because you're 31 percent smarter in a positive frame of mind. Now, you know, you can take it to the extreme where you get blinders on. But Sean Acker did a Harvard talk, uh, a TED talk, Harvard psychologist, the happy secret to better work. And that's the source of my my stat. And I highly recommend that TED talk because it's it's entertaining. You, you can imagine a guy who talks about being optimistic and positive might be funny. And it's is full of one liners. It's really funny. So you need to be slightly optimistic. Now, a hostage siege or when people are really upset and emotions are just out there, negative emotions are out there. Then I'm going to I'm going to work really hard to stay calm. And a business deal these days, I'm getting my best outcomes being playful. And because each each emotion has its own contagion, and there's there's hard neuroscience behind that. Uh, again, Andrew Huberman, I was on his podcast recently, and and we got into this. And you know what the great great conversation with Andrew is, I can tell him what I find as a layman works, 
And then he could turn around and explain it to me neuroscience why it works. <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. You just told me how the watch worked. And sometimes I need that. Um, but the calm as an emotion is contagious. And if I'm calm and I sound calm, you'll calm down. The varying degrees of impact will change, but you'll still calm down. And I'll actually, the famous late night FM DJ voice also calms me down. I'll use that voice to intentionally calm myself down if I need to. Not, not, a, not a playful approach. Like on, on a regular basis, if I approach you playfully, suddenly you want to collaborate with me. Uh, Derek Gaunt, one of my coaches, says the first, your first move in a negotiation is to remove yourself as a threat. And so if I'm playful, like suddenly I've either completely diminished myself as a threat to you or I've just taken a big chunk out of it. And since that's contagious, I probably snapped you into a more collaborative mood just with my tone of voice. And I'm seeing that, and I do small stakes practice for high stakes results. What does that mean? I, I lose my, my suitcase gets lost in an airport. I'm going into a lost luggage room and I'm playful or I owe a medical bill and I forgot to pay and now it's, it's aged by 60 days. I call them on the phone, I'm playful. I've checked into the hotel I'm in now and I, and I want a free upgrade. I'm playful. And it's, it's a game-changing, instantaneous game-changing moment in, in business deals across the board. Um, that is something I could not agree more with. I, I think most of my business deals um, that we've done and why we've been successful in them is because uh, that, that part where I told you I get excited, um, that tends to be contagious, especially because most people aren't excited about buying a storage facility or something, but the people that do it, they like it and everything. And when you, this contagion part, like I can see it in people, all of a sudden they're just as excited about something stupid as I am. And it's like, now they're like, yeah, let's do this, right? Like this is cool. And it's like, you almost like you give them permission. It's like you're giving them permission to be like, I'm not gonna judge you for thinking something so stupid is so cool because I do. And it's interesting how they open up. Now you have permission to be happy. You have permission to want to do this. You have permission to be excited with me and do it together. And it, 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 it's an amazing door that you open up to other people. I, I agree, and, I, and I, lo I love the way you put it, because sometimes I guess people need permission to sort of relax. And so when you do it, like you've led the way. Yeah, now relaxing's, I, I think the hard thing for most people, because when you need to relax the most, it's in the worst situations. So going <laughs> into something relaxed is one thing, but when you're in, let's say you, you're, you're in a situation with your boss and things are going downhill, and now you're getting worked up, Right. When you're in the middle of it, are there any uh, uh, tricks or tips that you use to try to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not like I can go and meditate like, no, we're sitting here. We're in it. It's happening now. How do I gain control back and how do I calm myself and put myself into a 
frame of mind in which I am still in control. Yeah, and so uh, lots of great stuff in there. Um, I, I look at these emotions often as rock, paper, scissors. Now, ideally, you want to get into an optimistic, playful uh, mindset. But in many cases, if you're getting upset, you can't go straight there. And so the calm, calming is often the intervening move. And how do I calm myself down? I'll, I'll use that late night downward inflecting voice to calm us both down. And I find myself getting lit up in a moment for any of a variety of reasons. Uh, usually it's gonna be, be if I'm tired, um, it's gonna be, if, you know, or the day has already worn me out. Like I didn't get a good night's sleep, you know, I, and that you get downhill, it starts to accumulate. Or, you know, two hotels back. I mean, I got crossways uh, with uh, um, uh, the guy at the front counter because I walk in and I'm tired and I'm, it, it's been a long day and I'm jet lagged. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in Europe. I just, I just got there from the U.S. I didn't get a good night's sleep on a plane. So I got all this stuff working against me. And I, I know I, I almost always need a late checkout. And so I asked the guy, what time is my checkout tomorrow? And without even looking at my reservation, he says, hotel checkout is 11 a.m. Now, that ain't what I asked. <laughs> So immediately I go, that's not what I asked you. I asked you what time my checkout was with a bad tone of voice. And his baby is going downhill from there. And finally, and I catch myself in the middle of it. I'm thinking to myself, I'm arguing with a hotel clerk. You know, this poor schmuck is dealing with one entitled traveler after another. And I am on that list. And I can't immediately spring into like, hey, how are you today? tone of voice. And so then I, I just I start to settle myself down with a calming, soothing tone of voice. And then he's going there, but reluctantly. And by the time I get to the end of the conversation, you know, I'm 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 self-effacing. You know, I'm 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 letting him know that I realize that I've been a jerk and the guy's really trying to help me. But I couldn't go straight there because I started off bad and then I had to pull myself out of the downward spiral first. Well, and this is an important point. I, I see this a lot in myself because I have two teenagers. And so um, this has been something that has shown me a lot more about myself, I think, than them. But teenagers are extraordinarily emotional for reasons that I don't know or understand. Um, my daughter, who went from being the absolute, like, just logical calm one in the family, 100% responsible. Now I feel like I never know what I'm going to get. And all of a sudden it's so quick, right? And it's like such a big change that our immediate reaction is mirror. And I immediately mirror the energy. And I'm like, I'm the adult here, not the teenager. I'm the one that's supposed to be remaining in control. But yet it's so quick and so unexpected that it's like, I don't, it's just a natural reaction. And so I find myself in that position all the time where I'm like, my body just reacted. I didn't think it through. I wasn't acting as a reasonable adult. It happened, and then I reacted. And I'm like, I got to start to backpedal here uh, and try to get on the right path as now, because when I obviously react, the teenager, wow, do they ever react? Um, and nothing, nothing gets solved or done. So I think this transfer point is a really 
important piece. I love the voice change. That that voice change, that calming, because you can see that. You can see that in yourself and like especially once again with teenagers. Man, does their voice change. And it's like something in your brain when that voice change triggers and sets you off. It's the strangest thing. But it's like their voice changes and you just go on alert and defensive. Well, and, and you're making the neuroscience point. You know, it's an involuntary reaction. Like is somebody's voice, they don't choose whether or not they're going to react. You know, that, that would make it a psychological choice. You know, you're fighting a neurochemical reaction. So it's involuntary and, and it's hard science. And you get triggered. Then the first thing, you, you know, you, at some point in time, you're self-aware and you're like, holy cow, I'm out of control. You got to pull yourself out of the downward spiral, which is extra hard because you got triggered. So it's not just that I have a, a I, I lack emotional control. It's everybody. <laughs> so that's good. Good. I'm glad there's a science behind this, and it's not just me. <laughs> you are guilty of being human. Oh <laughs> um, Now, the I want to talk first of all. You started up your company, and then I, well, you left the FBI to start uh, the Black Swan Group, correct? In the early 2000s. Yeah, 2007. I left the FBI uh, officially, formed the company. Just a couple of months later in early 2008, on my father's birthday, January of, in January of 2008. And was that specifically to work with businesses? What, when you, I mean, that's a big difference. You were an FBI negotiator with terrorists and with hostage situations, and you went to start a consulting firm in the business world. Well, first of all, I wanted two things. Why? And second of all, how was that received? Well, I, yeah. So my father uh, had his own business. I grew up in a small town in Midwest, small town Iowa, son of Richard and Joyce Voss. Sole proprietorship business, business that most employees ever had at any one time. You know, he had a helper driver for his, for his truck and he had a secretary and, you know, he did everything. But he was entrepreneurial and I always wanted to have my own business when I left the government. And I, I wasn't 100% sure what the business was going to look like. Because when I started, I didn't know what, you know, I had no idea how I was going to come out the other end. But just about two years before I left the FBI, I went through Harvard Law School's negotiation course as an FBI hostage negotiator. And while I was there, I ran across some brilliant people, Bob Manukin, Sheila Heen, Doug Stone, among others, brilliant folks, Bob Bordone. And they said, look, you're doing the same thing we are. The stakes are different, but the dynamics are the same. And... You guys are actually have really evolved this thing that we call back then active listening, empathy. You guys have really, really evolved it. So when those guys at Harvard Law School said, it's the same stuff, you know, I hoped that there would be a business for people advising and consulting in business, business negotiations only. Law enforcement is in my rear view mirror. I don't do that at all anymore. But I really kind of got the confirmation from those guys that the dynamics were the same. So when I got ready to get out, I'm like, all right, so, you know, we're going to we're going to try this. My, principally, my son, Brandon and I started the business together. And what really caused it to take off was when Never Split the Difference was published in 2016. And when you started to work with groups, were they hesitant because you have, and maybe uh, quick explain before I get into that, like your approach. So the Black Swan Group, 
what you're, you talk about the black swan method when you go into these organizations but what are you doing and what is your method that you're asking them to do because i i just think first of all yes we know we negotiate in business but that's not that doesn't tend to be something that people are like we are going to come in and you know so it's just a little especially back then i think it was a little more off you've made it much more mainstream right which i uh, peg to you where that's been all of a sudden now that is something that we're talking about people are talking about because of you um so when you are doing your black swan method what did that look like and how were you how are you doing that value presentation of your new business to a company that is like you don't know anything that we do well you know we started out by just trying to show them that it worked and you know we do role play simulations with them but you know what the famous role play is 60 seconds or she dies i need a car in 60 seconds or she dies it's a hostage negotiation role play but in point of fact it's kind of the essence of every business deal when somebody really wants something now and either you can't or shouldn't give it to them and if you do give it to them you gotta you gotta take them there slowly you gotta go very slowly very gently without making them upset and it could be a supplier saying like look uh a vent uh, a buyer saying cut your price now or go to another vendor or a supplier say cut this deal now or we're cutting you off or an employee says i need a promotion and they're not ready there the world is replete with deals we either can't or shouldn't give them what they're asking for so we try we try to demonstrate that to them and you know we blow them away and wow them but the, you know they didn't have any external social proof what people really want is first of all does somebody i know use this you know it's not just social proof that's out there but it's your peers and it's the best-selling business negotiation book on earth there's there's no other business book that is sold as well or in a shorter period of time and is in so many languages it's in 30 three languages in 36 countries. None of the other business books that compete with us are in that many languages in that many countries. And yet still for some people, there's still some social proof that they need. You know, all right, so yeah, you're working for, entre you're working for entrepreneurs, but is there an M&A guy that's using it? And as soon as, as soon as one of your peers is using it successfully, if you're in the bell curve, in the middle of the bell curve, that's when you'll try it. You need to see somebody that looks like you. Now, if you're ambitious by definition, and not everybody is, some people are competitive and they're not ambitious. There's a big difference. The ambitious people love innovative stuff. You know, my uh, the, the negotiation class I did for Masterclass is their most popular class. You know, more people take my negotiation class, then take Steph Curry's class and Serena Williams' class and Martin Scorsese's class, you know, pick it. And Masterclass Which told me a long amazing, time ago- Which is amazing, by the way. Everyone should go, <laughs> literally go to Masterclass and do it. Amazing, Chris. So there's a reason why it's Thank the you. most, but continue, sorry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Masterclass told me a long time ago that people they're looking for are the curious and the ambitious. They call them cats. This is several years ago. Curious, ambitious, 30-somethings. So curious, what is that? By definition, that, that's kind of a positive frame of mind. Like you're, you're interested, you're engaged, you want to learn. Ambitious, 
and I didn't think it much of it as a time, but ambitious, you're by definition innovative. The, you know, the competitive person is not necessarily innovative. They may do the same thing over and over and over, trying to make it perfect. But the ambitious person, Patrick Mahomes, he's ambitious more than he's competitive. Now, he likes to win, but he's throwing a ball sidearm, underhand, behind the back, no-look passes. You know, he's throwing all sorts of passes because he's, he's curious and he's ambitious. He's, he's trying to find new ways to enjoy succeeding. And so to, to be ambitious, whatever you're doing for your living, if you're truly ambitious, you probably picked the book up. I love that. Now, um, one thing I want to hit on before I let you go, I, I mean, obviously, I'm just writing notes on it. I, I feel bad for the viewers because I'm like, this is more for me. I'm like, I just, I've, you know, there's so much good stuff here that I'm literally going to take back to my companies and put in. Now, you've got obviously the Black Swan Group, um, the books, your content, uh, your, you know, just f free content outside the books and everything that you're doing, like you're on here. Um, what else are you're in the middle of, uh, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to touch on and it was fireside. It was this, this app and I didn't, I hadn't heard of this and I didn't know. So could you explain to me what, what, what you're doing on that? Yeah, this is brand new social media app. It's a subscription. It's available on whatever phone you're using, iPhone, Android, whatever. It's a subscription. And it was originally pitched to us as an interactive podcast. And I'm like, all right, you know, that, that might be kind of cool. You know, there was a thing out there called Clubhouse in the midst of a pandemic that got really big. And that was an interactive live platform. And so uh, Fallon Fatemi and Mark Cuban are the founders of this. And Fallon says, you know, it's an interactive podcast. And I, and I believe in Fallon, she's a phenomenal human being. And I thought, yeah, I'll go with it. And what it's really turned out to be once we get started is group coaching. Now we have an hour session once a week. I do one session a month, but we have it every week. And our, my other coaches are on too. So you get a flavor of the different experts that I have. And after we did it a couple times, typical structure is I'll bring up a topic. I did one two days ago and it was on one of the commandments of negotiation. And then I talked for about 20 minutes and we started taking questions from people literally all over the world. We had a guy in a recent episode called in from a mountaintop in Tibet. <laughs> wow. And so then I started taking questions and I said, to, I said to my team, wait a minute, we're doing group coaching here. They go, yeah, I guess we are. Like, remind me what we charge for group coaching. And no joke, what we charge for group coaching is $5,000 an hour. If you were to come to my company on behalf of your group, your company, or an individual, it's going to cost you $5,000 to spend an hour with us. Fireside is $1,000 a year. That's amazing. That's like shocking. And is this just yours or is it you're on it? Like, is it an open platform that other people can go, but you can go on and find uh, like somebody to go on? Like, let's say you can go onto the app and find Chris Voss. Or is it is this your app in your coaching program? You know, I think you have access. You, you have access via subscription to the other coaching programs, and there's some pretty interesting ones there. I know Gordon Ramsay's on it. I know there's a there's a psychic. You know, Johnny Wishbone is a psychic uh, who's who's uh, really popular that that does really well. I think if you subscribe to our service, 
probably uh, that's the only one you're going to get. Got it. So that's perfect. So you, get, which you, you need to go on it, though, and find you. So go on to yes, Fireside, right, right. find you, and then subscribe to it. Awesome. Yes. Exactly. Um, okay, Chris. Uh, yeah, you it's are in the app store. In, in all of them, all right. right? iPhone, everybody else. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Now, um, yeah, you are obviously incredibly busy, and you've been generous with your time today. I appreciate it. Um, I thank you for it. Is there anywhere, where else can people go to learn more about you? You mentioned the Fireside app as we were talking about what you're doing there, but um, is social media, your website, where should people go? Well, uh, based on what your choice is, I'm at the FBI negotiator on Instagram. And uh, the website is blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. And we've got a ton of free resources on the website. Perfect. And those will all be in the show notes, everybody. So just go down there, click, and it'll be easy uh, for you to get to. And uh, Chris, with that, thank you for your time today. Uh, absolutely uh, amazing stuff you're, you're, you're doing and putting out and extraordinarily impactful. So appreciate it. Thanks, AJ. The pleasure was mine.